1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I had given Kevin Pelton of ESPN Insider the option before the playoff started of which round he wanted to preview on the show, and he chose the second round, which I thought made a lot of sense because there were going to be some interesting matchups. We would learn a lot in the first round, and while we do not know all four of these because we recorded on Saturday, the off day for all the series, we only know the first three. We talked about all of those, so started with Spurs, Rockets, then moved on to Cavs, Raptors, and then Celtics Wizards, and there are timestamps for those of you who want that in the description, and then we talk a little bit about Game 7 of Jazz Clippers, which will probably have happened after before a lot of you listen to this, but that's fine, you know, that, that we kind of knew that going in, so hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K is the place to go for my personal choice for buying and selling tickets has been since long before they were a sponsor of this show or any of the other ones I'm affiliated with. And if you use the promo code RealGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, you get a twenty dollar rebate off your first purchase. Conversation runs probably a little bit over an hour. And as I said, timestamps for those who want it. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thanks as always for having me.
1: We're gonna start this with the series that I'm guessing we're both most intrigued by, though that that could be up for discussion, and that's Rocket Spurs Even though I've spent a lot of time thinking about the prospect of this series, I I still find myself very, very conflicted about it.
0: Yeah, this is where I spent the majority of my time in research trying to understand the season series, in part because of the fact that, you know, as compared to some of the other ones, I think it's more representative. Although the one big change is Lou Williams only played one of the four games between these two teams.
1: And it's also hard because both these teams are kind of unusual in kind of the severity of their strength. I mean, Houston was the second best offense in the league. San, did San Antonio end up number one in defensive efficiency? I know they were close.
0: They did, yes. They uh, they prevented Golden State from joining Chicago in 95-96 as the only team to go number one in both.
1: Oh, that's right, because the Warriors, their two years, they finished one in offense one year, one in defense the other year, but never, never number one in both. That's yep. right. There are a lot of different angles and things, discussions. But where I want to start with this is just how do you see the Spurs starting and finishing when in terms of defending James Harden? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll
0: see a lot of Danny Green on him in this series. seems like is often the case. You think back to like Kevin Durant in last year's semifinals and in previous matchups with Oklahoma City, even though Kawhi is like the most ideal size strength matchup for Durant on, on paper. Danny Green did a good job. And whether it was because of that effectiveness or because of the fact that Pop didn't want to have Kawhi in that role full time with everything else he's doing, we saw both of those guys. And I think, you know, that'll be the same thing in this series where we'll see both Danny Green and, uh, and Kawhi on James Harden. But then at the end of the game, you know that it's going to be Kawhi Leonard.
1: Right. And part of the reason why I think the Spurs have this tactical advantage in the series, and that's not to say it's definitive, like, oh, they're going to win because of this. Is that they have two different capable guys, and I think uh, he would have to get a lot of reps. But Jonathan Simmons theoretically could hold his own if he had to, whereas Houston really only has one guy that I would feel comfortable putting on Kawhi.
0: That presumably being Trevor Reza. I mean, Patrick Beverly would be a you know could fight him in sight, the sense of Chris Paul defending much bigger guys like Gordon Hayward at times in the Utah series. But yeah, that's a, that's a, that's probably too much to ask.
1: I think so too, and Kawhi has gotten so much better offensively that I think that also works in terms of taking advantage of a mismatch because he's so good in isolation and he could just shoot over a guy like that and now he can make that shot.
0: That's true. I mean, that's kind of the strength of his game in many ways. It's not about, you know, his ability to make moves off the dribble or create easy shots. It's really that what would seems on paper a difficult shot because of the fact that you're shooting with a defender in close proximity his ability to rise over them makes that a high-percentage shot for him.
1: So you have those kind of structural things in terms of how you defend the stars. And also, both of these teams have a group of players that are outside of that who can be very combustible, and I mean that in a good way, offensively. Lamarcus is a good example of this even Ryan Anderson. And then for the Rockets, you also have Lou Williams, Eric Gordon. I mean, they just have a lot of guys who can score in bunches, but don't necessarily do that.
0: Well, there was a lot of talk during the Memphis series about, you know, is it a problem that Lamarcus Aldridge isn't scoring? Do you feel like they need him playing, you know, contributing a lot offensively to win this
1: series? No, I think they actually need him more defensively in some ways because because of the way the Rockets run everything i think that it's going to it's going to be a challenge for him like i'm not exactly sure how pop wants to use lamarcus other than the standard way which is to play him at power forward but as a help defender he's going to be very important and he's going to be asked to do a lot on that end because the rockets at this point in their process you know is they're uh, after the whole regular season of trying stuff out they only play guys whose shot you have to respect at the power forward position and respect all the way out to the three-point line, whether it's Ariza or Ryan Anderson or, if he comes back in time, Sam Decker. All those guys you have to defend out there. So if Lamarcus is playing power forward, which we expect, he's going to have a lot to do. Absolutely. And uh,
0: it'll be interesting to see how much they kind of tamp down his help defense responsibilities to just try to concentrate on Taking away the threes and are willing to concede the rim a little bit. I mean, Houston took a ton of threes during the season series between these two teams, only shot them at a 29.4% clip, but was relatively in the reason this series was close and all four games, the four games were decided by a total of 10 points. There were three two point games and then a six point win for the Spurs, uh, which gave them the three one series edge. But the reason it was close is because of the fact that Houston was able to be very effective because of that attention inside the arc.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And something else, as much as you and I both don't enjoy watching it, another gargantuan factor in this series is going to be who gets to the free throw line and then who makes those free throws. Because for the most part, the Spurs, when they get there, they're going to make them. They have a lot of good free throw shooters on this team. The Rockets can be a little bit in in either direction. And also, while both teams have good depth, let's say 1-8, to if guys get in foul trouble for both teams, depending on who it is, it can be a little bit problematic.
0: Yeah, there's all sorts of like interesting subplots in this series. Like first off, is San Antonio going to commit those kind of terrible, you know, fouls in the act of shooting that Houston lived on through much of the Oklahoma City series? You'd think that the Spurs would be disciplined enough to avoid some of those. Although, you know, some of them surely are credit just to how good James Harden and Lou Williams are at drawing those fouls rather than mistakes by the defender per se. Here's another interesting question. You know, we saw that the hack-a-shack, the, the intentional foul, the only time we saw it in the first round was Houston using it against Andre Robertson. Do we think the Spurs might use it against them in this series because Clint Capella is still a, a terrible free throw shooter? And I guess part of the issue with the, in the Thunder Series was Nene was playing so well, you didn't necessarily want to get him out on the court. I don't know if he'll be quite as effective as in this matchup as he was against Oklahoma City. And then also you, at some point start to worry about overloading him with minutes at his age.
1: I think the minutes part of it is important because generally speaking, and there are exceptions to this, the most important goal of Haka is to remove that player from the proceedings. So the most valuable time is when that player, like Andre Robertson, doesn't really have a suitable replacement. Yeah, you, know, you can make an argument that Oklahoma City, you know, their offense could get smoother and everything like that, and that there were moments where he was magnificent on Harden, and then there were moments where he was a little bit less than magnificent. So that's different than Capella Nene, which is, it's not a pick-your-poison, but it's kind of similar. Like, they have different strengths, they have different weaknesses, but I think Capella... If he can stay on the floor, could actually be a difference maker just because he's capable of defending at the rim and San Antonio has some guys that could be a little bit intimidated if he has some of those stretches. Like I think he had four blocks in the fourth quarter of I think it was game two. Trying to remember what game that was.
0: Right. And I think, you know, in the Rockets Thunder series, if the Rockets had ended up going to Ryan Anderson at center during some of those stretches, like especially when Westbrook was off the court. I think they would have been, they were perfectly fine with that. They, they did do that. And I think that was game four. But in this series, you're probably going to need a little bit more in the way of rim protection. And then on the other side, the flip side of that is, you know, we saw Dwayne Dedman kind of fall almost entirely out of the Spurs rotation against Memphis because of the fact that he wasn't a good matchup on Marcus Soule on the perimeter. In this series, I think he's really going to be critical because he's the Spurs big man who has the best chance of Doing what you know, Stephen Ad- the Thunder wanted Stephen Adams to do, and he did admirable. Although it's a, a difficult task of you know containing the the ball handler on the pick and roll, while also getting back to the rule man to try to take away that lob that the Rockets love to throw to Capella in particular, without having to bring that third defender over to help against the pick and roll.
1: It's fascinating because the Rockets and Grizzlies are both talented teams. You know, they that have succeeded, but. In terms of pick and roll offense, they succeed in such dramatically different ways because of Marcus' unusual skill set for a center, and because Mike Conley and James Harden are vastly different as players.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very different challenge, and that's kind of the beauty of the playoffs is to see you know teams try to deal with these very different matchups.
1: And I mean, Nate has talked about this a million times, but I think it's completely true. And and one of the most important elements of this series is. Can the Spurs, however they want to do it, can they contain a hardened blank pick and roll with just two guys? Because if they can do it with just two guys, they gain a an absolutely massive advantage in terms of keeping their players on everybody else. And the Spurs, at their best, have other guys, and they, they through their system, can create opportunities and open looks. But it's a lot harder for the Rockets to generate those looks if everybody else is covered.
0: Right, and... You know, I think that gets into an, an interesting stat I took a look at. So I mentioned that the Rockets shot poorly against the Spurs from three in the regular season series. And that was pretty typical of them against teams that had good three point opponent, three point percentages, which is interesting because of the fact that, you know, the research generally suggests that teams have very little control over what opponents shoot from three point range. They, they do have some control. It's not completely random. But uh, it does seem like for whatever reason, perhaps because they're so extreme, Houston maybe is actually more subject to three-point defense than most teams. And there was a pretty consistent relationship between the uh, percentage their opponents allowed from three in the regular season and the percentage the Rockets shot in the season series. It explained about 40% of the variation in, in what they shot from three. And so, you know, based on, I, I think that, Probably part of what that's picking up is because of what our mutual friend Seth Partnow has uh, discussed and quoted at his presentation at Sloan Conference this year is that part of the challenge with talking about three point defense is that you only talk about, you can only judge it on plays where the team actually shoots a three. But there's all these cases where teams won't shoot the three because they don't get an open up enough look. You prevented the shot from ever happening in the first place. Houston, they're going to take the shot either way, probably. So maybe they're subject to three-point defense in terms of their percentage in a different way because of the fact that their attempts are not as sensitive.
1: That's fascinating. And it also could tie in, I think there are certain teams, the Raptors are one of these, but I think they're a little bit separate from this, who take some of those mid-range shots anyway, but DeRozan is just so good at hitting them that they still do it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that may be more not as surprising because of the fact that the the mid-range game is governed a little more, I think, by the offense than... That's true. Yeah, but... It still will be interesting to watch. I mean, Houston like, it was competitive in these games without shooting the ball well. They won several games in Oklahoma City. In the o- They won the Oklahoma City Series 4-1 despite generally not shooting well from three. Are they less dependent on making threes than we've kind of believed them to be all
1: along? I think it's entirely possible because they do other things well. Also, they just get to the foul line such a comical amount that that can be, serve as an offensive foundation as opposed to the three-point shot. But some of it is also... Oklahoma City's offense and defense were, were somewhat inconsistent when, they're, when they weren't like full starters versus starters. And that's something to watch in this series kind of for both teams is as they go through the ebbs and flows of their rotation, because the Rockets, you know, they kind of intermingle their, since they really only play eight players right now, they have to commingle their starters in the backups because they can't, you can't do a hockey sub with eight guys. So I want to see that. And I want to see how those lineups, like, you know what, if they try to pull off, Lou Williams, Eric Gordon, and Harden together or you know basically any of their three guard lineups can the Spurs make them pay on either end for that
0: Yeah, you you know you would think they would be able to I, The one thing I looked at is that you know during the regular season Rockets were minus 24.9 net rating when Harden was on the bench and again like I said Lou Williams only played one of those four games and he shot one of 10 in that game so he, he wasn't much of a help but the Rockets have generally not seen much drop off all season long when James Harden has gone to the bench, but go, that's, you know, against a relatively weak set of benches around the league. If you put them against a San Antonio team that has an exceptional bench, do they start to lose a little more ground when they have Harden out there and have to extend his minutes as a result?
1: Yeah, that's the spiritual analog to the idea of a team with a, with a strong bench losing a little bit in the playoffs because teams are playing their starters more. Like, they're not the same argument, but I think they're related to each other. In some ways, yeah. And, the, and in some ways, the Rockets have, have both of those issues because other than Harden, they couldn't really scale up the minutes for any of their other best players, either due to injuries or just because they have too many other good guys at the same position.
0: I mean, Ariza is probably the other one who you would expect is going to see, probably going to match Kawhi's minutes at the, at the starting point and then, you know, play beyond that as well.
1: And also, you know, is this a point where Pop, sticks with his guns and you know plays all of his guys but another open question for the Spurs I mean we talked about the idea of Deadman playing in this series when he was basically out of the rotation is that he has a lot of guys that he's kind of comfortable with but not super comfortable with and so how he mixes and matches those guys will be absolutely fascinating because that's not something he's usually had because there's been this foundation of you know Tony and Kawhi and Tim and to a degree Manu But right now, you know, Tony's been incredibly inconsistent, but I mean, a lot of his success has been reliant on making a ton of threes, which he doesn't usually do. Kawhi is amazing. Like, Kawhi is the consistency in the LaMarcus. I I think he's somewhat... I think he's more consistent than some people give him credit for, but they just don't need him in the same way.
0: No, they don't. I mean, in the, in the first round against Memphis, it really wasn't that he was necessarily an inefficient scorer. It was really just that his usage rate was cut so much because of the fact that their offense was running so heavily through Kawhi. And it'll be interesting to see if that continues, especially late in games in this series. You know, you look at what made the difference in the season regular season series, as close as those games were, it often came down to, most notably in the one game that you know kind of launched his MVP candidacy with the block on Harden at one end and the score at the other, it came down to Kawhi making plays at both ends.
1: I'm absolutely fascinated to see if the Spurs defense can hold up in the series because they have a lot of players who are smart but don't necessarily have the physical capability of matching up. You think about all of the Spurs' true centers. Deadman has flaws kind of in a lot of different ways. Talented guy. I like him a lot. Pau Gasol is going to have a lot of problems defensively in this series. Offensively, I think he could have some good games. And then David Lee is basically the same issue. You know, stretch him out, make him defend in space. And the Rockets are one of the few teams in the league that can actually credibly make any opposing big man defend in space because of the guys they play.
0: Yep. I mean, that's it's going to be a challenge
1: is there any particular matchup that you think other than involving Harden and Kawhi, that you think is going to be somewhat predictable or like a bellwether for the series i think
0: tony parker versus patrick beverly maybe because as effective as parker was in in the memphis series you know obviously like you said inconsistent and this is also a a very different defensive challenge going up against the the bulldog defense of beverly for you know multiple games will that wear parker down over time uh I, I'm I'm curious to watch that.
1: I also want to see if the Spurs can capitalize on Lou Williams' defense. I think that's something Oklahoma City didn't do enough of for the most part of the series. But the Spurs, depending on how they run the rotations, could have better perimeter talent to do that, especially like if, if they try to put Lou on Manu or try to put him... I mean, they can't put him on Kawhi, so... Patty Mills, like those type of circumstances, just run, run him in some actions, make him go, go off a bunch of screens and see what you can get.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, especially Patty Mills could go off in, in that scenario.
1: I'm intrigued also because Harden had such a, such a good defensive matchup for him with Robertson where he could basically just stand around and help out and not have to move very much. The Spurs do not make that an option. Like There is not a really a way to hide him defensively. In a, there are the ways to hide him so you can reduce what he's bad at, but there are not ways to make it so he will, So he's going to ha- be able to take possessions off.
0: And that's also a difference between the San Antonio offense and the Oklahoma City offense. When you've got so much isolation as opposed to the movement and passing of the San Antonio offense, everybody's going to be involved defensively.
1: So does that mean, I mean, to me it does, that, that Harden should play, they should expect to play him fewer minutes in this series?
0: yeah i mean i i think you kind of play it by feel a little bit because of the fact that you know you're you're going to need so much out of him in this series i think if you you know again if you can stay afloat when he's on the bench in six last night against utah where they were able to rest chris paul and deandre jordan i think longer than Rivers probably anticipated because of the fact that the bench played so well anytime you can steal those minutes i think you're going to want to but Ultimately, they may have to kind of live with some defensive deficiencies from him because of how important he'll be at the offensive end.
1: That's a good point. And I'm excited to see it. And then and also going along kind of with these lines is one of the matchups or combinations that Popovich has gone to a fair amount is David Lee playing at power forward typically next to Pau Gasol after they move Deadman into the starting lineup, I'm not sure that combination is going to work against the Rockets because they, they just the way they run their rotations, the way they run their actions, those guys together are going to be majorly problematic.
0: Yeah, I would say I'm skeptical as well. I mean, part of it will come down to just, is Ryan Anderson making open shots, which he didn't in the, the Oklahoma City series for the most part.
1: Yeah, that and I think Pop will be more frustrated by the quality of looks in some degree than then the idea of whether they go in or not, considering the valuing of process. But at the same point, if they're not going in, then it's it's certainly something you can live with in that context. But also something, I mean, I think we're pretty close to being done with the series, is over the last couple of years, especially last year, there were times when the Spurs needed to go to Kawhi at power forward. And that's, you know, basically the idea there is not so much that he's being defended by Forrest because you put your best guy on Kawhi. That's just the way it works. But putting more spacing on the floor, putting more perimeter players on the floor, I thought that would have really helped them against Oklahoma City as much as it's kind of counterintuitive because they were – but what you need to do is you need to make some of those Spurs big men unplayable, and I think that's a way to do it.
0: I don't know. I mean, in a sense, do you almost not want that because of the fact that you don't want to see Kawhi at the floor? It's such a devastating possibility. Like, do you not play Ariza at the floor as much late in games because of that?
1: That's an interesting idea. So basically the idea of kind of lulling the other team into a lineup that makes that, that's that's worse for them?
0: Yeah, I guess. It, and it sort of depends on, you know, part of the issue now is in the past when we talked about this, Manu was the obvious guy to be the extra guard in that scenario with Danny Green sliding down a small forward and Kawhi at the four. Him not playing well in the Memphis series, a lot less incentive for the Spurs to go that way. So, you know, is it the 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 backcourt of tony parker and patty mills playing together which we saw a lot against the grizzlies is it manu playing better in this series and being an option to close games that's the challenge is is the player you get on the court by going to quiet the floor actually going to be better than the player you have out there now
1: yeah it's a lot less clear than it was and i mean manu went i think he didn't make a shot until game five of that series if if i'm remembering correctly and you know he had some decent decent stretch after that but If the Rockets feel like he's not going to be devastating to them, they can certainly approach it a different way. And if they play Mills and Parker together, you're putting an absolute ton of strain on the other guys defensively, considering what Houston's probably going to run as their closing lineup.
0: Yeah, it sort of depends if they have Lou out there uh, next to Patrick Beverly or or how they go.
1: Yeah. Unless there's something pressing that you feel like we need to discuss, I think it's it's about time for a prediction. Uh, Yeah, I think we got all of it. I, I can...
0: Considered for a second going like Spurs and five here in much the same vein is that Rockets Thunder series in reverse in terms of, you know, a bunch of close games where the Spurs kind of out executed at the end. But the the series was close enough during the regular season. That I think I'm still going to hedge towards Spurs in seven.
1: I'm going Spurs in seven, too. I think they have an advantage, but I'm not as sold on it being permanent and being like, I think there are ways that it can become a big problem. The Rockets certainly can, can win a couple of games. However, I am in this series, completely open to the idea of San Antonio winning games in Houston and maybe Houston pulling one in San Antonio. So the reason I picked Spurs in 7 over Spurs in 6 is more of where I see the talent than because I don't like picking a team to win a road closeout game. We've already seen that a few times in these playoffs.
0: Yeah, this was the year where I was, I like went hard to the, I'm barely going to pick anyone to win in 6. I think Boston was the only team I had winning in 6, which which did prove correct. But then ultimately, then we saw uh what four out four series that ended with the road team winning game six yeah so so much for my uh logic and use of history there
1: i think it's also a couple of different things that ended up they were harder to predict was that a couple teams had rougher patches early on in the series i mean boston if they had i mean who knows if ronda would have changed this i mean if they had played the way they played in games particularly five and six if they had played that way in either one or two they would have won so then they probably would have won in five
0: Right. Yeah. Teams sort of figuring it out in terms of Boston, the adjustments they made to go along with the Rondo injury. And then, you know, I think Toronto against Milwaukee would be the other example of that, where they sort of figured out that Bucks defense over the course of the series.
1: Yeah, that's another good example. While we still have two series and a big game seven to get to, I want to take a little bit of time to tell everybody about Seageek. SeatGeek has been the place that I went to to both buy and sell tickets for quite some time, long before they were sponsored on any of my shows. And the reason why is because it's a really great platform, and it's great for buyers and sellers because they are an aggregator, which means that instead of having to look at multiple ticket sites, it can be a little bit like the Wild Wild West at some points in terms of making sure that it's good seats or making sure that you try everything and you want that. So it's more like Kayak, where everything's all in one place. And also, they have a great tool called deal score and what deal score is aiming to do is quantify the combination of ticket quality and ticket price so instead of having to go through everything and say oh you know what's good what's bad they can't tell you exactly what tickets to buy because they don't know whether you want to sit really close or you want to sit somewhere else but they can tell you within your parameters what is the best combination of ticket and price and so I think that's a really valuable thing it not only saves you time but it saves you money and it gives you comfort of mind and one of the other things that I really like about SeatGeek is the way their promotion works with us so you use the the free app, which is great, SeatGeek, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and then you use the promo code under the settings tab, and you say type in RealGM, and then what they do is you you place your order just like you would do any other time, and they will just send you a $20 rebate after you do so. So not only do you get to try it out, something I've used for a long time and really do enjoy, but you tell them you came from us, and you just get $20 free dollars. It's pretty fantastic. So again, it's SeatGeek, promo code, RealGM, and now Kevin and I get back to the other series. Okay, so we don't know yet what the other Western Conference series is going to be, so we're kind of going to leave that to the side for now. I think I know the answer to this, but which of the two Eastern Conference second round series are you most excited about?
0: This this is a tough question for me. I, I guess I would go with Cavs-Raptors here, even though it's a series we've seen before.
1: I agree with you, partially because I just think the Cavs are the most interesting team left in the Eastern Conference, so their opponent. And Toronto challenges them... Depending on what version of the Raptors we get, Toronto challenges them more than some of the other teams that are on the table for them, and most certainly more than the team that they just dispatched in four games.
0: Yeah, and it's worth noting that, I have to look that up, where the the Cavaliers had the worst point differential uh, during the regular season than, than Toronto.
1: And Toronto has a, a fascinating combination of talent now. I mean, I think that we already saw some of the dividends considering what they gave up of the trade deadline moves they made. I mean, I think they still would have had a decent shot against the Bucks without Ibaka and with P.J. Tucker, but Ibaka in particular made an absolutely gargantuan difference in that series.
0: For sure. Those guys both played a ton of minutes. And they make it difficult, I think, to read too much into the regular season series or last year's matchup between these two teams because, you know, they – they only played in that final game of the regular season where Cleveland was resting everybody And
1: Cleveland has defended DeRozan and Lowry because the Raptors do theoretically, depending on what rotations they go with, they can have places to hide Kyrie Irving, but if they don't want to put LeBron on some of the other team's best players, they might just say, do the best you can, Kyrie.
0: Yeah, and you know we've seen them try to kind of use LeBron in spurts on DeRozan. He's the guy to put out fires and then lating games in that matchup. And, you know, he's clearly far and away their their best matchup for DeRozan because of, you know, DeRozan's strength and, you know, his uh, his the precision of his footwork, which are not things that uh, are, are ideal for a J.R. Smith matchup.
1: I think Richard Jefferson could do a pretty good job on him. Not great. I mean, DeRozan's a way better player, but I think that could work for little bits and pieces. It makes
0: sense in the terms of taking away his strengths and sort of forcing him into uh, a slightly different style of play than he would ideally like to do.
1: But then you're also asking a lot for Cleveland's help defense, which has been pretty shaky for the last couple of years, but especially this year.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the interesting questions in this series and is whether we'll see Cleveland try to simplify things more, whether that's by just automatically trapping the pick and roll and trying to create energy by getting everybody moving around like that or going the opposite direction and automatically switching the pick and roll is uh, you and Nate talked about in that comeback in, in game three in Indiana uh that was a big factor in it that they just started switching everything and being really aggressive about helping after those switches and packing the paint and Indiana didn't have the shooting to make them pay. Toronto has a, a more reasonable shot of having that kind of shooting, although they've got DeRozan off the ball and then also someone like Corey Joseph or, you know, even PJ Tucker, who's not a great shooter, then Cleveland may be able to do that same thing and sort of in terms of sort of, dare, sort of daring those guys to beat them from the perimeter.
1: Cleveland does a wonderful job of threat analysis and just kind of figuring out, okay, what can this guy do? What can't this guy do? And I think they are going to be more aggressive at realizing that DeMar that Demar DeRozan can't shoot like those threes in that circumstance. But then the other guy who's going to be a big factor in the series in like four different ways is P.J. Tucker. P.J. Tucker is, to me, clearly their best chance of defending LeBron, but he also not only gives an out probably to LeBron defensively, but his... Lack of shooting also makes it so that LeBron can functionally become like a, a rover defender and totally mess up what the Raptors want to do. All right, so what
0: do we think that the Raptors rotation is going to look like in this series?
1: I don't think they're going to start Tucker, even though I think, even though I think they probably should. They'll probably start games at least early on with their base lineup. I think they're going to go back to Valanciunas at center because they want him to... Pl- the only time he should play is when Tristan's on the floor. He's going to be an absolute disaster against Channing Frye.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely agree with all of that. And you definitely want to uh, save your Serge Ibaka at center minutes for that matchup and and make sure he's out there uh, against Cleveland's second unit.
1: If we get Cleveland's second unit against the Lowry plus bench unit, which has changed around a little bit just because of the rotation minutes, it's going to be absolutely fascinating because the – Toronto lineup. I I assume that that's when they'll probably make sure that PJ Tucker's out there to defend LeBron because LeBron can actually absolutely wreak havoc on that. And while Toronto can score a fair amount, I don't know if they can stop Cleveland's best offensive lineups.
0: It's interesting during the regular season, the Lowry plus bench versus LeBron plus bench, which you know obviously great lineups for both of those two teams, uh, was pretty much a wash. They they kind of canceled each other out.
1: And if that happens again, I would say that probably helps Cleveland just because I I think Cleveland is better starters versus starters, but I think that's less clear now than it was in January or so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, especially, you know, we'll, we'll see how much the, the annual lowry DeRozan playoff struggles continue into this series. And it, it did seem like last year when they got to this matchup against Cleveland, there was a bit of a weight lifted on Toronto to not be the favorite in the series. You know, that, not that that stopped them from getting blown out in the first two games, but that was more of a just – being outmatched in terms of talent uh situation, I think, than you know, kind of the missed shots or self-inflicted wounds that we often see from the Raptors in the postseason. And given the way that the two teams have gone, I think the talent is a little more even, and that's maybe why we saw the even though Toronto didn't have you know, uh, Ibaka and Tucker during the the three real competitive head-to-head matchups, those were all pretty close games. Even though Cleveland won all of them.
1: And I remember at least one of those, Toronto, they were on the front end of back-to-back, but it was absolutely brutal. I think they were, I think they played Cleveland in Cleveland and then flew back home to play the Warriors the next night. That sounds right now that you mention it. God, that's absolutely nasty. The league shouldn't do that. But I don't know in this series, I think one, something I really enjoy, and we've seen a little bit of this in the playoffs is with Dwayne Casey, how quickly is he willing to shed something, whether it's a lineup or a strategy when it doesn't work? because they actually have options now. If they have with PJ Tucker, with Serge Ibaka, they can go in some different directions. This isn't and also of course guys like Patrick Patterson who has kind of had varied success from what I remember against Cleveland to mix and match and see what see what works. And I imagine that Cleveland is going to be more of the aggressor and then Toronto is going to be more of the counter team. But that could work
0: yeah and then also they 've had a week to prepare for this series uh you know didn 't know necessarily there was going to be Toronto, but probably had a pretty good idea that especially after their game five when so, you know, they're they're probably going to have their game plan more buttoned up, even though, you know, Toronto has had it's not the quick turnaround that we're going to see in the Boston Washington series because of the fact that we're not starting until Monday. But I, I think that probably is a factor. in it. Uh, I, I'm very curious. I don't think you mentioned him specifically in that list, but uh, how Norman Powell played, how he's used in this series after being so critical against the Bucs.
1: Right. I mean, he, he poses different challenges for teams because if you play him there, you can, you can kind of get into some stuff. And he actually, I don't think it's going to be great guarding LeBron, but we might actually see one or two good stretches for him just because he competes so much. But he, he doesn't have the strength all the way. And that gets into the idea of a at center because I think if you're going to play Powell at the three, presumably that's one of the ways you can also incorporate him in some, some lineups where to and Drosen are playing well. I would assume that you would want somebody else probably PJ Tucker, maybe Damari Carroll, on the floor to make sure that you have enough kind of on the pr- in terms of perimeter defense to make Cleveland sweat.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think in this series, you know, Powell's better matchup is probably going to
1: be against Kyrie Irving. Yeah, that's an interesting point, but I would I would think so too. Let's say the Raptors
0: are throwing out a lineup of carol tucker Ibaka and tucker is defending lebron and both lebron and like the the cavaliers have their starting front court on the court could carol defend kevin love or do we think that's too big a mismatch
1: i think he can love i I don't think love it can post up that well on carol he does have an advantage but i don't think it's a big enough advantage to really do it and i don't know i'm gonna be really interested in this how much the Raptors are going to switch things involving Kevin Love because a lot of their other guys, like I wouldn't trust Amari Carroll on Kyrie. So if they run like a Love Kyrie action, I don't know that the Raptors are going to want to switch it. That might be more of a hedge for them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you'd feel okay about that, but uh, it's tough. I think probably the greater matchup might be one of their guards against love in the post.
1: Right. And that's exactly what love wants when he's a good post-up player. It's when he's taking advantage of a smaller guy or something like that. And if he doesn't have those opportunities, he's going to be less valuable. He is not somebody like I say this about Ryan Anderson sometimes, where I think you can just put a small on him or actually uh, most Bates is another guy like this because love can take advantage of it, but they have to get him the ball. And also what love has is an advantage over some of those other guys is He's a good passer. So when you send that double, as long as you, if you bring it from an angle he can kind of anticipate, I think he can get out of it.
0: Yes, that, that is a big difference. And just someone who's experienced playing in the post as opposed to, you know, someone who is not a comfortable post player and is just going in there strictly because of the matchup. I I think that, that makes a big difference in his favor. Even though, you know, I think the, I think the case for it is basically, you know, at this point, Love's post game has atrophied so much that I don't think he's a great option then down there. And if you're going to Love in the post, it means you're not going to LeBron or Kyrie or whatever else.
1: I don't think we've talked enough about the point guard matchup because I think it's entirely possible that for stretches of time they're going to guard each other.
0: Yeah, the way the matchups work out, it, it probably because of the fact that both of the teams have you know such other good perimeter players that that probably is going to be the case.
1: And I could see Lowry having some games where he just rips Irving to shreds. I mean, Irving's defense has been pretty awful over the last couple of years, though he has brought it up when he has to. And this is one of those circumstances where that onus will likely be put on him. But whether it's fair or not, we have enough of a sample size that when the game gets close and, you know, if defenses are more engaged and get up, Kyrie can beat that because Kyrie is one of the best one-on-one creators in the league. And Lowry can, but doesn't that often.
0: Yeah, I'd say that I, I'm not. Necess- it's not necessarily that I don't think Lowry can do it, particularly if he's healthy, and we haven't seen necessarily that in the playoffs a lot of times, so much as I think that Kyrie, in his case, we do have sufficient proof that he is an outlier in terms of his ability to do that.
1: That's also why Serge Ibaka is going to have to be huge in this series, because presumably in crunch time, Ibaka is going to be playing center, but Kyrie then, if he is more aggressive in terms of getting out and helping... Then that's going to open up a lot of opportunities for other guys, especially depending on whether Cleveland goes small or goes big or whatever they do. They're going to have other options if Kyrie is on.
0: Yeah. So what do, what do we think they do? Do they finish with Thompson? Do they take Love off the court late in games? Which you know, obviously we've seen at times. Uh, we know how good they are generally speaking with LeBron at power forward, but are are they willing to sort of deal with the uh, the internal issues that come with that?
1: I think that they can play. LeBron at the 4, but one of their big problems and I've railed on this basically for this entire year is that I don't love the rest of their wings. I mean, so if you're playing LeBron at the 4, that means Kyrie and JR are getting two of those spots. Are you going to give the last one to RJ or are you going to give to Shump? I mean, if RJ does a good job on sure you can you can get away with that, but otherwise those options aren't necessarily better than Love and Thompson playing together.
0: Yeah, it gets back to what I was saying about the San Antonio situation where you know, part of part of the evaluation there in terms of whether to go big or small is not just, you know, how much, how does it open up the court, but are we getting a better player on the court?
1: I also think that a significant factor in this series could end up being Darren Williams. Darren has been, I think he's been pretty good. Would you agree with that over this, his little Cleveland tenure? He's definitely had his moments. I don't think that the Raptors are particularly... Well, actually, I was going to say the Raptors aren't the best team for playing Kyrie and Darren together, but that really depends what lineups on the floor. Like, I don't think you want either of those guys on DeMar Rosen, but if you can put them other places when the Raptors go with two, and in the case of Game 6, sometimes three point guards on the floor, then you have hiding places for those guys.
0: Yeah, I mean, Corey Joseph isn't going to threaten you much, and then, yes, uh, especially if DeLon Wright is also out there. And that, that'll be fascinating to see whether that continues, whether that was just kind of a you know, he was a necessary spark against Milwaukee when the team wasn't playing well, or is he really, you know, the Dwayne Casey thinks one of their better options and therefore someone who should be playing no matter what?
1: If the Raptors are playing Lowry and one of their other point guards together, particularly, particularly if it's Corey Joseph, that is, to me, if Kyrie's on the floor, that's a really easy out for him to just put him on Corey Joseph. For sure. Just get out. So that, that'll be a tactical thing. Well, it's because Cleveland, has two different kind of star players. They have they have the star players that you don't want them to guard a good guy on defense, and I'd say that's Kyrie and Love. And then they have the guy who's better off guarding other players because LeBron, because you need him offensively and because he's just so incredible as a help defender. But I don't know that they have that many great other primaries. So that'll be a nice test for them because if Cleveland moves on, if, if they move on, I think we're both going to pick them. They're going to need the other guys to step up defensively if they want LeBron to be a rover, whether that's against the Warriors or depending on how, you know, the Boston-Washington series turns out, you know, they, they might challenge LeBron a little bit too. Yeah,
0: there's just only so many hiding spaces spots you're going to have against any one team defensively.
1: One big benefit that Cleveland has in this series is that I don't think Toronto has that much in the way of big man shot making in that way that I think that you're going to worry about Kevin Love, like, I'm not sure I would love... He'd be great on Ibaka for extended periods of time. But other than that, I mean, you put Love on Valentinus, I'm not going to worry about him killing you. Not going to worry about that with Patterson. They'll have some moments, but I don't think that they can really, in any higher usage, just kill you.
0: So do you think they cross-match to start games then? I mean, we we do see that fairly frequently from Tyloo.
1: If Toronto starts their... So if they start Lowry, DeRozan, and then not Norman Powell so if let's say they go if they go damari if they go back to the traditional so damari Ibaka and then that would be uh, Ibaka and Jonas I think they might play that straight because would you rather have Tristan on on Ibaka and Love on Valančiūnas is that I kind of that, the idea
0: I think that's often how Lou has kind of preferred it to put put Thompson on the shooter and Love on the post guy so I I would not be surprised if we see that matchup at least at the start of the series and kind of see how yeah. it plays out
1: and that also could be an impetus for Toronto to try some different stuff out, because if Love can hold his own there, if Love can handle valentinus the Raptors are in some pretty big trouble.
0: Yeah, it might give you more incentive at that point to go to small and try to find a, a matchup that takes more advantage of Love defensively.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can run Love in, if, in those cases. valentinus is a pretty good—I I think of him as a pretty good screener. He's not bad. He's not elite as much as I would like him to be but he can create space. The difference between those is that Lowry and Drosing can shoot that shot, but I don't think if they run their offense off those like 20, 25 foot pull-ups that it's going to work as well as other teams could do Like let's say if Cleveland wanted to do that against Boston with Isaiah or against the Warriors.
0: Yeah, that's reasonable.
1: Anything else before we get into predictions that you feel like is an important dynamic in this series? I mean, I think one of them we talked about a little bit, but just who Dwayne Casey plays and when is going to be just so significant because their options are vastly different from each other and they've create different teams.
0: I think one of the worst things that you can have as a coach in the playoffs is options because of the fact that it opens you up to second guessing.
1: And it's not like they have continuity in the first place, you know, like this is not a Raptors team. Well, how would you say that in terms of continuity for them?
0: I think the continuity is pretty high in terms of, you know, the core and the style of play is similar. It's easier. I think when you're integrating a couple of complementary pieces and guys like Ibaka and, and Tucker who don't really change those things than it is if you're integrating Kevin Durant, for example. Even if even if that's less total minutes, it's still a bigger change philosophically.
1: I think they push that a little bit harder when they go with Ibaka at center.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not that different than when they probably you know went to Patterson in those smaller lineups is it, kind of right. a de facto center.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, anything else before we get on to predictions? No, I think I'm ready to move, do that. I'll go, since you went first last time, I'll go first this time. I think that the Raptors are better than last year, and I think that the Cavs are worse than when they played last year. Not significantly, but a little bit. But I'm still predicting the same result as last time, Cavs in six, because I feel that last year that didn't reflect the talent disparity between the teams. It was just that Cleveland took their foot off the gas pedal for games three and four.
0: Yeah, completely agree with that. Not only you know, kind of the, the talent of the teams, but even the competitiveness of that series, when you consider that I think Cleveland won all four of their games and wear wins in blowout fashion. So I also have Cleveland in six in this one.
1: If you were to pick a second most likely outcome, what do you think it would be?
0: <sighs> I think Cleveland in seven more than Cleveland in five.
1: Yeah, I'm going that way too. I mean, it would be a lot I mean, five would be an impressive domination, considering the Raptors have personnel things with Ibaka that can be advantageous, and they also have players who can have really good nights. So I I think that's fair as well.
0: I mean you know it's it's certainly possible if we see the raptors team that we saw in early in that toronto series or in that milwaukee series and then obviously we've seen in the playoffs in the past it wouldn't stun me from that standpoint but i am still convinced that despite that struggle that the raptors have the best chance of beating the cavaliers of anyone in the east
1: yeah and if we're both picking in six i think that doesn't that does not bode particularly well for who they'll face in the, in the next round if they make it and we know those two teams because of what happened yesterday The Wizards and the Celtics, A, don't like each other, which is fun. But B, I I brought this point up on on Dunked On last night. I think that both teams have strengths that are going to be problems for their opponent.
0: I agree with that. Yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting matchup from that standpoint. And uh, another one where, even though I I think the, the regular season series helped me crystallize how I think about this series... looking back through it, it's probably not all that predictive. And, you know, I'm the one who had who has, you know, touted and based on the, the research I've done, the importance of the regular season head to head matchup. But sometimes you get ones where the games just aren't representative of the teams that they're going to be in the playoffs. And this looks like one of them. The first game these two teams played, the Celtics were without, without Jay Crowder and Al Horford. And the Wizards got a combined 34 points from Trey Burke and Marcus Thornton, who will probably score about 34 fewer points than that in this series, depending how much garbage time Trey Burke plays. The next two games, no Avery Bradley for the Celtics. Also, Jordan Mickey got a random start because I think Amir Johnson missed one of those games. So it really was only in the fourth and final meeting between these two teams, which Boston won at home, that we really saw the Celtics' actual starting lineup against the Wizards.
1: And that game had some weird stuff of its own. Like, I think Marcin Gortat only played 11 minutes in that that one. They used a lot of Jan Mahinmi, and we don't know what his availability is going to be for this series. But I think there are a lot of different avenues with this. And the place that I want to start is Boston's challenge defensively, because Boston has a lot of wonderful defensive players. And on the perimeter, they have Avery Bradley, who's certainly an all-defensive team contender, Marcus Smart, who's strong as all get out and very talented, and Jay Crowder. I don't love any of those three guys on John Wall
0: yeah it's interesting John wall wasn't really that effective against the the Celtics in the regular season, but i I'm not sure if it was necessarily because of what the Wizards were doing defensively or just him not making shots
1: and he's certainly coming into this series on a rhythm he was phenomenal against the against the Hawks overall
0: absolutely and another case where you know is was talked about the Celtics. It's debatable after, you know, Jimmy Beller was probably the best player in their last series. It's debatable whether Isaiah or John Wall is the better player in this series.
1: I would rather have John Wall, but Isaiah certainly will have some big games. And my assumption this could be challenged a little bit if you know if, if Beal really wants it is that Wall's actually going to guard Isaiah on the other end whereas I don't not think Isaiah is going to guard John Wall because if Isaiah guards John Wall they're dead.
0: Yeah and I think that's one of the big questions of this series is how do the Celtics hide Isaiah Thomas defensively against a team that has two guards as good offensively as Wall and Beal. Probably the answer to that is ultimately going to be Often Otto Porter and then maybe Kelly Oubre late in games if the Wizards finish games with a smaller lineup and you know whether Porter and those two guys can make the Celtics pay or you know how creative Scott Brooks can do in terms of small small pick and rolls to try to force Isaiah Thomas onto Wall and Beal uh, much as we saw with the the Bulls doing that with Jimmy Butler in the last round and and kudos by the way to Isaiah Thomas who I thought did a pretty good job defensively against Butler late in that series uh, just fighting and making him shoot difficult turnarounds as opposed to getting easy looks.
1: And that ties in with something that I would be a little bit concerned about as the Wizards, but it depends because early in the Bulls series, the Celtics were not providing enough resistance. Well, not early, middle of that series, enough resistance on those small, ball pick and rolls. But they got better at it over the course of that series just because chi- Chicago was doing it so much that they figured out an incentive. And so they have that m- more in place for this series than they would have otherwise.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think the the more you see anything as a, a defense or, or as an offense in the other standpoint, the more you can adapt to it. And uh, I guess that that could be looked at as a positive, the fact that Ch- that Chicago series was as difficult for the Celtics as it was.
1: Another challenging area for both teams going into that theme that I talked about is I feel like both Marcin Gortat and Al Horford are going to have challenges guarding each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, in Gortat's case, I think it's probably about, you know, getting on the offensive glass and and hurting the the Celtics that way much as Robin Lopez did in the rat last round. The first question probably we should be asking here are, is are they going to match up with each other? Or as we talked about with the Raptors, do we see the Celtics going back to their regular starting lineup in this series after Amir Johnson was uh, a DNPCD towards the end of that series with Chicago?
1: It's definitely interesting. But if you bring Gerald Green into into that equation, I don't know where you put him either. Are you going to put him on Markeith?
0: I mean, I assume you have to go Jay Crowder on Markeith in that case then that means Gerald Green defending one of Wall or Peel, <laughs> if you're not going to have Isaiah do it. Yeah, when, when you put it that way, it really seems like a tough fit.
1: It could be Marcus Smart, but then there are other problems that get exacerbated there. I mean, yeah, Amir Johnson is a more reluctant shooter, but damn, that could be problematic too.
0: My yes, and it's nothing more than that, is that Brad Stevens will probably go back to Amir because of the fact that you know, it's easier to probably adjust from the baseline than it is to start with something different and try to go back to the baseline after that. So that would be my guess, but it's it's again nothing more than that.
1: And that's why Washington having a better starting five is so devastating in this series compared to Chicago, because Stevens had the latitude to screw around because Chicago wasn't gonna make you pay at every spot.
0: <laughs> yeah did make them pay in the first couple of games of the series, you might say. But yeah, uh, that and that's maybe one of the interesting differences between these two teams is the fact that even though the Celtics are the higher seed and the, the number one seed in the East, you probably feel much more comfortable about the Wizards starting five. And that makes it incumbent on the Celtics to dominate the situations where the Wizards have their bench units in there.
1: And that gets into one of those more surprising dynamics, at least to me, in the Washington-Atlanta series was that the Wizards, for whatever reason, performed substantially better with Beal on the floor and not Wall than Wall and not Beal. Though I don't know how predictive or instructive that is.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing that's mostly a fluke. And then the other thing we saw in that series is the bigger drop off for them was not about either guard so much as it was about the uh, the front court guys, uh, Otto Porter and Markeith Morris, when when they were out of the lineup, exacerbated by their injuries in the front court, surely.
1: Is there anybody happier about the transition from series to series than Markeve Morris, who goes from having to guard Paul Millsap to having to guard upside down question mark?
0: <laughs> well, that, that's true, but he, he did seem to relish the trash talk battle with Paul Millsap.
1: He can trash talk all those Celtics guys, and they're not—they're not, they're not going to do a whole lot to make him meet his words like Paul Millsap did. That, that is very fair. So we, we've talked before, particularly in that. Rocket Spurs series about how teams are going to defend the pick-and-roll. Part of the reason why I think you want Horford on the floor and you want to make sure you have that is because I think he's their best big in terms of handling that wall Gortat pick-and-roll and those guys have just such magnificent chemistry.
0: I wouldn't sell Amir Johnson short in that regard. I still think, you know, despite his, uh, his physical limitations that he's such... His pattern recognition is so strong that he he remains an effective defender. And it's really more about, you know, getting him off the court against the Bulls was really more about how it opened things up offensively. But Horford, I think you do feel good about him in that matchup as well. To switch gears, how do you see the Celtics finishing games in this series?
1: Well, so we I think we can feel pretty confident in four of the five guys. So Horford, Isaiah, Bradley and Jay Crowder, that fifth spot. Oh, man. Because also, if you, if the, if the Wizards get into playing with Markeef at center, then that starts, that starts pushing it and then they probably want to go small. My instinct is to always go with the team's best player. That is outside of that, and that would be Marcus Smart to me,
0: right? And he gives you know he's a good defensive option against the Wizards' guards. Uh, it's just a question of how much you can live, how aggressive Washington will be doubling off of him, and how much you can live with that. Yeah, on the other side, I do think Washington probably does finish small because of the fact that you know, in addition to Gortat maybe having a difficult time chasing Al Horford around, you've also got the aspect that. They probably are going to want Kelly Oubre to defend Isaiah Thomas, as he did uh, most notably, and I think that was the the second game the two teams played in Washington this season. He's kind of emerged as their best option, oftentimes, against point guards.
1: And since Boston doesn't play that many other guys that are really threats, they can actually survive having John Wall on somebody else and going through some of these machinations because it's not like they're going to get killed by... My, by Marcus Smart, by Avery Bradley, and Bradley will make some shots, but you just don't have to help off him as much in those circumstances.
0: Yeah, it's not someone you really worry about even. And and it's not like either of those guys are dreadful defenders. You just don't want to make them work as hard as they would have to if they're going up against Isaiah Thomas. That's why, you know, you give that responsibility to Kelly Oupre. The other interesting name for the Celtics in terms of a fifth guy for their for their finishing lineup is, you know, we'll see how he responds and whether he was just kind of overmatched in the playoff crucible. But I think Jalen Brown could get back in the match. In this series,
1: Jalen Brown could also think. I think Kelly Olynyk could.
0: Who had a very nice game five for them against Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I mean going, you know, a Kelly Olenek matchup against Jason Smith, uh, that, that that should favor O'Linick
1: It certainly should. And Washington's bench has been better than they were beforehand when they were just a dumpster fire for early in the year. But Boston, if Terry Rozier can actually play decently well, or if they just use Marcus Smart, the one, they have enough depth where they can make these, make these really challenging minutes for the Wizards. And if they get closer to feeling like they need to play Waller Beal on the floor at all times, then that reduces the amount of minutes Wall and Beal play together.
0: Yeah, which is a win for the Celtics from that standpoint.
1: Absolutely, because that also gives Isaiah another place to be.
0: Yep. Anything else matchup-wise that we haven't we haven't discussed here?
1: I guess one of the the elements of this series that I'm in I'm concerned about from the Celtics' perspective is that they've gotten a lot of production from their non-Isaiah players, especially with Isaiah's missed threes. But I don't feel, from when I've watched it, that those are necessarily going to persist.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're right to be skeptical of that. I, I think probably at some point Isaiah Shudi is going to regress to the mean. No, that'll sort of compensate for that
1: anything else you feel that's particularly important for the series? I mean, we're both going to enjoy it, but I think there's a lot that we just have to see in action before we can talk about it.
0: Well, the other note I had was, you know, I mentioned Bradley missing those two games, and that was a huge, huge hit for the Celtics defensively. In the two games Bradley missed, Bradley Beal, the two games Avery Bradley missed, Bradley Beal had 66 points on 48 shooting possessions, and the other two games against the Celtics, he had 22 points on 26 shooting possessions. So, you know, I don't think that either of are necessarily uh the, there's probably some noise in both of those but does illustrate how important beal or bradley's defense was on bradley beal
1: that also is a potential evidence for keeping bradley on beal oh god there isn't a way to do this <laughs> nope, and, no and part of the reason is that because i also don't think jay crowder can guard john wall so maybe you just kind of grin and bear it sometimes with isaiah on john wall
0: that'll be interesting but yeah
1: so let's go to predictions I already know mine, so I mean, I know mine in all these, but I'll just go first just because that's on top of my head. I surprised Nate with this, but I'm going Wizards in six.
0: Interesting. I think ultimately, the reason I would pick the Wizards in this series is because of the fact that they've played well against the Celtics in the regular season, but... After looking at it, I think a lot of that is due to the, the Celtics injuries that I mentioned and, and particularly, you know, the Bradley loss. So I think the Celtics are pretty comfortably the better team. And I'm not that scared off by the fact that they lost the first couple games to the Bulls with Rondo. Uh, I think that was a totally different matchup and also, a lo- you know, just some random noise to some extent. So uh, I am going Celtics in, I guess, seven games. You don't I, I want to totally
1: pick it in six? I, no, I don't. But that, that's probably – if, if it, they were all on a neutral side, is that where you'd see the talent level?
0: It's, yeah. Yeah, I think around there.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, I, I, under, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I've grappled with this since we kind of thought it was a, a distinct possibility a few days ago. And I just think Washington's talent is, is better in a – not better, but good in a way that the Boston can't counter. And Boston's going to struggle in that way. And I think – They're so reliant on Isaiah and then whatever they get on tough shots from their bench. And I don't see that carrying over.
0: And I would say to me, you know, Washington has been so middling on defense and then so lane in their second unit, even after the additions of Bogdanovich and Jennings. And I think this is, you know, where those start to really catch up with them, given that it took them six games to dispose of a pretty weak Atlanta team.
1: Atlanta was the worst team in the playoffs, probably, right? Uh, in terms of point differential, they were, yes. Yeah. And I mean, they did have some injuries, but but that's not massive. We won't talk about it too long, just like a minute or two, because most people listen to this probably after it happens. But what are you feeling about game seven of Celtics Jazz?
0: Yeah, I, you know, my, my thought going into this series is that whichever team won the series, it was going to seem obvious in hindsight, you know, whether it was, you know, the Clippers winning because of the fact that they had so much more talent and had been so good when they were healthy. Although, you know, the Blake Griffin injury changes that or the Jazz winning because of the fact that, you know, the Clippers have so many troubles and can't figure out how to win in the playoffs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I still kind of feel like that, like we're going to come up with an obvious storyline no matter what happens in Game Seven. Uh, I wouldn't rule out the Jazz just because of the fact that the Clippers have home court and that they lost Game Six. Rudy Gobert's injury is obviously going to be, or his condition is obviously going to be crucial here. You know, is he anything close to a hundred percent in this game? Jazz probably need him close to that. I think they make more open shots than they did in Game Six, and you know that probably makes it closer. Right Off the top, but uh, ultimately, I I think the Clippers probably have, you know, maybe like 70, 75% chance of winning.
1: I probably would have had the Jazz as favorites in this if Gobert was not 100%, but if if he hadn't had any subsequent injuries. But since he didn't, I have the Clippers as a slight favorite in game seven.
0: Yeah, actually, I wanted to take umbrage with what Nate said on Dunked On last week uh, after game five, where he said he would favor the Jazz even on game seven in LA. And to me home court advantage in game 7 is so overwhelming that i don't think there's any scenario of like a realistic playoff series, you know, where the lower seeded team could have, yeah, it'd have to be a really dramatic injury, more dramatic i think even than Blake Griffin to favor a road team in game 7.
1: The clippers also played way better defense in game 6 than i had completely believed that they were capable of without Blake and I don't think that's going to run for all of game six, especially because it didn't even in the first half and the first half defense wasn't good. The Jazz just missed a ton of shots, but I think they can get enough of that, that, that the, they can hold their own.
0: How big of a factor do we think Austin Rivers was in that?
1: He was a significant factor. I mean, he was a player that, that can execute their scheme and that is competent and they didn't have any other substitutes. So he helped a lot.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Gordon Hayward, A really strong offensive game, but didn't go nuts. And they were able to keep Bamute on Joe Johnson, who was quiet in this one. So I I think they have to feel really good about the minutes they got from Austin Rivers, and especially the fact that he was able to play 35 two games removed from that hamstring injury.
1: Absolutely. I think that's enough for now. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: All right. Always a pleasure.
1: Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can read his amazing work at ESPN Insider, and you can follow him on Twitter at k Pelton. That's K-P-E-L-T-O-N. It's always a challenge this time of year with a weekly podcast to strike the right balance, because especially in this case where one series hadn't finished before the second round started. So I I hope we did a good job. I hope you really enjoyed it. And I don't think either of us would have that much to say on the Warriors against either team. We both have would have the Warriors as favorites in that series. I don't want to presume for Kevin, but I'm pretty confident I'm right. So we can keep an eye on that. And something else, uh, I'm not going to talk about it too long. I might actually write about this. I have a piece about halfway done. This has been a, a tough week for sports media. A lot of good people lost their jobs. And I don't Know enough about the specific mechanics of what was going on in overall in, in ESPN, especially considering it's Mr. Pelton's employer, to presume what happened in any way, shape, or form. But it's always tough when good people have to find new jobs, and I, I can appreciate that. I'm sure everyone can. And one of the there are a million different things that can and should be discussed in the way that sports media is right now and the way that it should be, but. Something that I'm feeling more confident in moving forward is the idea that advertising is not going to be the kind of the stand-in, the cure to all that ails us in sports media moving forward, just because whether you want to blame ad blockers, you want to blame a million other uh, other things, I hate to use that phrase twice in such a quick sequence, it's just not possible at this moment to do it in that way. And I understand why companies want to focus on the bottom line, especially publicly traded ones. So... Sometimes it is probably going to be incumbent on content consumers to put a little bit in because if they're, if, you know, it's kind of like if you, those are people who go to a, you go to a party and if you don't bring something to eat, if you don't bring something to drink, then sometimes there isn't going to be enough. And I think that's kind of part of the problem right now is that for a long time, there was this expectation that content could be free and that everyone would still be able to enjoy it. And there was still a, a way to make it work for everybody. And in certain circumstances, that will be possible. And I'm thrilled for those people who have that. But for a lot of other people, I think that's not the right model. It's not a sustainable model in today's world. So there are a couple different ways that that can work. You can support it through advertising or, ha- or at least partially, which is what Real Gym Radio is. And I, I'm deeply appreciative for that and deeply appreciative of our sponsors. And then there are, there are other models as well. I mean... I, I write for The Athletic. The Athletic is has subscribers. They have a base of subscribers. They don't have ads. And that's been working very well for them, for us. And then Nate Duncan and I actually just started started something else, which might be the kind of the advent. No, I don't want to be that broad about it, but an, a slightly different model, which is having certain content be ad supported, but then having other kind of means of of revenue, and so what we did is we started a Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue, D-U-N-C-A-N-L-E-R-O-U-X, and what we're basically, what we're trying to do is use that in a way to not only give us supplemental income in case advertising changes around for Dunked On or for anything else, but also maybe use that ideally as fuel to help keep the Twitter NBA show going because the nature of that is it's hard to get advertising and deal with sponsors because it's been hard to monetize so far. So that's another way to kind of work with what we're doing. So that's what we're trying right now. You can subscribe to that if you want. You absolutely don't have to do whatever makes you happy. And we're striking the balance also by Providing additional content for those at the subscriber level, we're going to have special podcasts, special Q&As, and likely some special Periscope broadcasts as well. So check it out, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue, do whatever makes you happy, but we're going to try to make all of this work. I mean, that's the challenge of going in a new frontier is that you have to try things out. Certain things are going to fail. Certain things are going to succeed. There are going to be winners. There are going to be losers. That's just the way this works. And I, I deeply feel for, the especially the people in the business who I'm I'm closer to, you know, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss has been a friend of mine for years. I admire Mark Stein and Henry Abbott. I've dealt with them less directly. And then the work that the, the True Hoop crew does on their podcast, it is of course very, very different from what I do. And I mean that with the highest praise. They've been able to cultivate a sense of family of togetherness of fun that I've never really even tried to pursue because it wasn't something that I was nearly as good at. And I deeply respect Jade and everyone else at True Hoop's ability to do that, especially with an amazing cast of characters. So I think that our world of podcasting is smaller and narrower and less fun without it. But my hope is that we won't be without it for very long. So we'll see how that all works out. I have no inside information, but I'm, I'm always optimistic that talented people will find a way to make it work. And that is always the hope with this, but I am optimistic about it. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, you can reach out to me, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com, at Danny LaRue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will respond depends. And if you want to support this show, it's a great thing you can do. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing, whatever it is. You can also subscribe, download every episode, whether you listen to it or not. Hopefully you do but you don't have to. And also, you can check out our sponsors for this and every other show. For me, this is SeatGeek for this episode, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, my go-to for buying and selling tickets. You can also use the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, for a $20 rebate on your first order. Still trying to figure out exactly what next week's episode is going to be. We're going to be knee-deep in the second round, very excited for it. And I have one guest in mind, but I'm still working through whether that it's going to be that or maybe that'll be pushed back to a future week. So looking forward to all that. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.